Welcome back, everyone. Um, today's episode of the podcast, like all of the other ones so far, is brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment extraordinaires. On the show today, we have Andrew Veach, who is the CEO of a company called Machine Labs. They're an Edinburgh-based marketing data science company, uh, who, in Andrew's words, are creating the marketing product he wishes he had when he was a chief marketing officer. He also does some angel investment on the side, and he has successfully built a couple of companies before Machine Labs, and he's now just successfully raised a million pounds for Machine Labs themselves, um, which we talk about on the show. Um, So all in all, really interesting guy. Um, So ladies and gents, please welcome Andrew Beach to the show. Thanks for agreeing to come on, Andrew. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, great. I'm looking forward to it. Um, So normally uh, we start on education. I must admit only because it's always on everyone's LinkedIn page. Yeah. Um, and yours is not, from what I can see. Uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm very proud of my six hires and my SVQ, actually, <laughs> so... <laughs> um, um, no, so, I, so you didn't go to uni, no? Well, I did, actually. I, I went to do maths and computer science, and I did a year, and then I, I, I just felt I needed a break, so I took a year out. Um, yeah. But as... Which then became two years out, three years out and then eventually I just I just I just never returned um I think yeah. I guess I suppose really if you're if your passion is business which I think my my passion really was you know from from the start then well I mean I mean I mean clearly I, there's a place for um the academic side in business and you know you've obviously got to be able to understand numbers and understand accounts and all of this sort of stuff but I think I think there's there's no I think actually doing it is really the the only way that you can properly learn business. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think you're right. I mean, I think I, I did a relatively generic kind of management marketing degree, and I think if I was the same as you, and if I'd taken a year out after first year, there's no way I would have went back. Yeah. Um, but in fact, the best thing we did in first year was got put into a little team. Everyone got assigned a role, and you had to come up with like a product idea, and the winning team got a thousand pounds, and our team won it, and that was my favourite thing. <laughs> The whole four years at uni, because it felt so much more practical. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely not. So, so again, I mean, really, I was in my my very early twenties as as I sort of got into business. Um, nice. Um, and then I think I had quite a. Well, I think as most people in business do, you know, it's staggeringly unusual in business for your first business to be a big success. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you hear about you know Mark Zuckerberg's and people like that, but I mean, they 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 are very, very, very unusual. The more normal position is to be a big success, maybe sort of you know business number two, business number three, um, and that was certainly the pattern I followed. I mean, I had fairly close to ten years of 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 business not going very well um, yeah. before I had my big success, and I think you know most. I would say that, that that is the journey that you need to prepare yourself for if you're planning to become an entrepreneur. Okay, it, it's conceivable that you'll kick something off and it will all work, but it, but it probably won't. I mean, as a brief digression, I mean, one of my friends is, is Charlie Stross, who's um, a science fiction author. Uh, I was having a beer in an Edinburgh pub with Charlie when he was 41. And at this point, he was unpublished, or at least... I think he's had the odd little story here or there, but he certainly wasn't able to make a living. Yeah. And I said to him, Charlie, what do you want to do? He said, I'd like to be a science fiction author. And I asked him, you know, when did you start? He said, I started when I was 16. 
I've been writing constantly from 16 to 41, and I haven't yet had a success. <laughs> That's some real resilience. <laughs> and right then there. the next year, he won the Nubella Award, and his whole career took off. But That's incredible. You know, but I think, in a way, that that yeah, that is the way you've got to look at it. You know, he he worked hard from sixteen to forty one, and then at huge success at forty two. I mean, with me, it wasn't quite so extreme that I started about twenty two, and then I had my big success probably about thirty. So I, I kind of had eight years, but even still, it was you know it was eight you know quite hard years. Years of grafting, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I quite like that you went down that track to start the show because mm-hmm. my massive issue with like startups, because I mean, doing the job that I do, we speak to a lot of startups, we um, go to a lot of like award ceremonies and stuff, and there's so much like glitz and glamour and quite, <laughs> quite frankly like bullshit around startups <laughs> where like. You can see this little guy working in a WeWork and he's pitching for like three million quid investment after two yeah. days and he hires a team of people and they're in up for all these awards and then like six months later they go down the tubes. <laughs> it's just like the, the best people we've worked with is like ones you don't hear of for three or four years and then they're just like a solid business already. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, it, it is, it's, a, it's a common joke there, but I mean, often awards are often not a great sign. No. <laughs> um, we have to pay um, for them most of the time. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. Whereas, you know, it's just spending a lot of time with, with, with customers and and just really, you know, grinding away at it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, one of, obviously, you know, most of my career really has been in marketing. Um, so one of the things... You know, sometimes you know I speak to people about you know writing a great advert, uh, and then I'll say you know how comfortable are you that you could write a brilliant advert that would you know recruit thousands of customers, and most people are probably not that comfortable. And then I say, what about if you had a hundred attempts to write a great advert? You measured the performance of each advert. You researched what people thought about each advert. How comfortable would you then be in writing a great advert? And, you know, most people actually then say, well, if I really worked for months doing, a, you know, a hundred versions of the advert, I would do a great advert eventually. Yeah, you and, that, so. and that's, you know, that is absolutely my approach to it, is, is always just, you know, churning the handle over and over and over and over again. And then, you know, eventually <laughs> you get there, which is just, you know, the precise opposite of, I think, the common view about business and marketing. You know, people talk about sort of get rich quick. I mean, you know, I'd quite like to write a book saying, you know, get rich in a decade if you're lucky. Get, get moderately <laughs> wealthy after a long time. <laughs> exactly. And enormous amounts of work. But it, it probably wouldn't really sell very well. <laughs> you never know, to be fair. Um, so we'll do, like, you mentioned you, you were in marketing, so we'll do kind of like a very quick whistle-stop um, okay. ra- rather than going at every place. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know that you you did a lot of work as kind of marketing e-commerce director at Diet Chef, um, and then you've also kind of run your own companies uh, and founded various other things. So I suppose from did the marketing thing, given that you kind of just knew you wanted to work in business, did you just kind of naturally gravitate towards marketing and that kind of that profession? Um, well, I suppose the two things. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, Diet Chef was my first success. I think after after my 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 eight years in the wilderness, um, <laughs> Diet Chef was my big success. So. I suppose the first thing 
that I actually got right was recognizing that there was a bunch of skills I didn't have and finding a business partner who actually had the skills I didn't have. So actually it worked incredibly well because, you know, my strength, you know, was in marketing and I guess in technology. Um, you know, his strength was, you know, very much in negotiating, getting a brilliant product. You know, so so, so I think when, when both of us got together, that was, that was really, you know, when, when things really took off. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, of the two of us, was it my business partner who came up with a product that was a great product at a great price? You know, was he the person that made the business succeed or was it my marketing? And of course... Marketing is massively easier to do when you've got a brilliant product at a great price. So I'm actually going to say, and you know, we did, we did well with a total of a hundred pounds of investment. We ultimately um, recruited more than a million customers. Um, but I would actually say that I'm, I'm not going to take the full credit for that. And I think, in a way, my, my business partner Kevin Doran, who developed that brilliant product at the great price, then made my marketing job, you know massively easier. I suppose the big problem though, and, and you would almost say it, the answer for your question back a couple of minutes ago would be that it 100% goes hand in hand because one of the big things, so my friend works at Edinburgh Uni um, with a lot of kind of PhD or like um, business incubator type people and one of his jobs is to help find industry partnerships and, and kind of spin outs and all that kind of stuff and one of the biggest things that he's noticed and, and that I've noticed in some of the clients we have, the idea and the product can be sensational but sure. if, if you don't know how to sell it mm-hmm. or or who you're selling it to, mm-hmm. then and you can't if you never get to the million customers like what you guys did, then the product the product and the price can be the best in the world. But if you can't get the message out there, then it's pointless. It's it's true. It's true. Although I will say most people who've spoken to me and said that they've got a sales and marketing problem, when I when I've dug into it, it's usually been the case that they've actually got a product problem. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but going back to yeah, I mean, I think I think you know, I developed some 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 principles at Diet Chef, um, and a kind of a marketing process. A big part of the reason is obviously as the business grew. I remember it started, um, you know, with the two of us, you know, w- w- working from home, and you know, it, it gradually built from there. But as it built, you know, the marketing, t- I, I got a marketing team. Yeah. So I needed to put together a process so that I wasn't doing all the work. Um, so the idea was, you know, if I had a sort of drop-in process, I could spend more time in the pub and the, the, the team could do the marketing. Um, that's, that's, that's the signs of a good, uh, <laughs> a good leader as well. You can let other people do it. Uh, but you guys had a really good technology team as well, right? Because that was all in-house. Um, we, we did. We did, absolutely, yes. Yes. Um, I mean, we, and I suppose, again, back then... I mean, I think today it might be slightly different, um, but certainly back at that point, you, you, if you wanted a, an excellent e-commerce platform, you absolutely had to develop it yourself. Um, there was just there was no alternative. Um, I mean, to, to us today, you know, with products like Shopify, yeah. um, you know, it, it it is kind of much easier to set up. But no, I mean that that platform was really important, and it and it was important also, you know, very much from sort of a marketing point of view as well. You know, it gave us a lot of information and measurement. So we, you know, I think month one, the marketing budget was £30 um, for the whole month. And then, you know, I think my last month there as, as 
as marketing director um, before I kind of I I, I left uh, was um, one point one million. So you know we just gradually. Yeah, and and, it's, and I tell you something, it's harder as well. Spending thirty pounds efficiently and keeping an eye on it is a very easy thing to do. Spending one point one million efficiently and keeping an eye on all of it is uh, is a very complicated thing to do. Oh, you see that? In, uh, um, I, don't, I don't know if you're a football guy, but there's uh, you see the managers that are amazing on a shoestring yeah. and get the most out of like pretty rubbish players, and then yeah. you give them a few million quid and they sound <laughs> absolutely duds. So I think it's it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely a thing. So did you guys end up selling Dietshare? Did you kind of exit there, or did you just move on for something else? Um, we did so well. I I actually um, left and then staged a comeback. Oh, nice. Uh, and then I guess gradually the the, 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 the the business actually essentially moved on in, into a different direction, doing um, food for the elderly. So um, we, we'd obviously developed an infrastructure for delivering meals to people's doors, which we used in the diet business. And then we actually decided to use that infrastructure for delivering food to the elderly. Um, and is that now what Parsley Box is? And that's like Parsley Box, yeah, absolutely. Nice. So it kind of built, it sort of built on the platform that was developed. And obviously the meals had to change. You know, there's a, a lot more sort of old-fashioned um, meals there. Um, Faggots, for example, is one of the dishes which you probably wouldn't have sold to the diet audience. No, probably and, not. Um, and then all these sort of, you know, fattening um, cakes and uh, and puddings. Yeah, bread and butter pudding, I mean, that must be our favourite. Yes, yes. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, so I, I kind of have, have less to, to do with that business now, obviously, as I'm now focusing on machine labs, which is you know, yeah. my, 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 my day job. But it's gone, you know, that's gone, it's gone incredibly well. Yeah. And then I think there was also, um, so we mentioned obviously the, the marketing angle to it, but like you said earlier, the, the kind of business and entrepreneurship side. So I think that they also mentioned that you, um, Founded a company called Logical Wear, but also mm-hmm. uh, another company called Fine Coffee Club. So I think yeah. one of the themes of your kind of career, you're quite happy and adept at having multiple spinning plates. By the looks of it, to to an extent, I would say that I, I've always focused. I've always really focused exclusively on one thing. I think mm-hmm. certainly as an an investor, you can obviously get involved in more things. I mean, what, there was a period when I exclude you know at the time logical where i started I, I was focused on that exclusively the coffee business i was also focused on exclusively for a period of a few years and then you know sort of passed it on so i think yeah, okay. I, I think i'm actually still on the website i think as being that you know the founder of the business but um I, I actually have got no involvement in that business at all anymore was that a kind of subscription-based idea like uh, well, it it started off as uh, for the first two months of trading, it was a subscription business, and then we discovered there were sort of mixed views about subscriptions. Um, you know, as a management team, we liked subscriptions, but the customers hated them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we actually abandoned subscription completely. I think, you know, the customers there, I think they felt they just wanted to order coffee. You know, when they ran out, and they they. I think people also always think with subscriptions, you know, am I going to have difficulty cancelling them? And, yeah. You know, I mean, as a rule of thumb in e-commerce, it, it costs twice the amount of money to recruit a subscription customer as it does to, to recruit a one-off customer. Oh, really? 
yeah, so so certainly, yeah, the, the reason it's called Fine Coffee Club is because it was a subscription business. Um, yeah. But that, I said, after two months, um, there, there was a switch. I feel like subscription businesses have really, like, taken off in the last, like, year or two, maybe. So you're just maybe a little bit too early with that. Um, yeah. But maybe, maybe not for coffee, though. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think they do They do have their place. But, you, I mean, you're right. Certainly at the moment, you know, virtually everything you can think of has been put in a box and sold as a subscription. Um, yeah, my sister, my sister just got me a sock subscription for a year for my birthday. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm... I, I don't know. As I said, I, th- I think there's a place for some things. Um, but, I mean, in, in general, I think I, I, I probably, certainly as a consumer, I probably prefer just to buy things. You know, the, the only one that I've regularly used for the last couple of years is razors, just because yeah. it was, I just forgot. But the problem with that was it wasn't the cancel, and that was really easy. But yeah. it turned out that either I don't know when I'm supposed to change my razor or not, but I had yeah. so many just sitting unopened. Yeah. Um, so I had to pause it rather than cancel it. And then just lastly, before we kind of go into machine labs, yeah. um, you mentioned kind of angel investment or investment earlier on um, yeah. as something that kind of lets you have a bit more input into different things. So I, I think um, you mentioned Parsley Box kind of still involved. There was TV Squared was mentioned. Is that yeah. just something that you decided that was just something you enjoyed doing that's kind of helping the success of other businesses? Um, I think... Yeah, look, you, you, you yeah, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I mean, on one level, um, enjoyment is a factor. I mean, I think, you know, to be absolutely honest, you know, buying Amazon shares a, a few years ago, as I did at what three hundred dollars, was is probably <laughs> was a solid I, decision. Yeah, has probably done done. Um, as well as sort of the angel investing. I mean, I've been very selective about it. Um, I mean, I've only really done e-commerce or things very closely related to e-commerce. And, you know, I mean, TV Squared has, has been a, an absolutely fantastic business. That's now managing more than $6 billion a year um, of TV advertising. So, you know, Callum Smeaton and the team have done you know, an absolutely fantastic job there. And again, yeah. that was obviously, you know, marketing and and TV was sort of one of my interests. Um, when at Diet Chef, I spent a lot of money on TV. I think I probably spent you know, over thirty million on TV. I think while I was there. Yeah, it says uh, that's one of my favorite parts of your LinkedIn profile. Normally, when you see um, like someone's uh, highlight reel or accomplishments, mm-hmm. it'll, like I saved this much money, I trimmed this much off the yeah. budget, and on yours, it is quite proudly says I spent thirty million pounds. On <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the tricky thing is is getting something back for it, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I just assumed that happens. So um, <laughs> well, in that case, because there was never any investment in the company, um, you know, we we, you know, all all of the spend had to come from profit. So, hmm. um, I mean, typically, what happened there? Well, I mean, to explain actually how that worked, we typically bought the food on forty five days credit, and then we bought the advertising on thirty days credit, and then we would get the sales from the advertising before we had to pay for the food or, or, or pay for the marketing. So that was really, so although we say it was founded by a hundred pounds, which is true, it was actually that a mismatch between getting the money from the customers immediately, but our costs being on 30 to 45 days is, is really what funded the business. Yeah. Well, that's what you see is uh, 
again, one of the big pitfalls of startups is that it's just the general cash flow where quite often it's the other way around where they're paying for loads of stuff and their customer money isn't coming in for 60 days. And like, that's what ends up, that's what ends up killing them opposed to the idea. Well, I'm sure your clients pay you faster. <laughs> uh, to be honest, do you know what? Of, of all the things that COVID has given us is, is a renewed sense of urgency with our lax, uh, <laughs> Kind of laissez-faire approach to chasing money because we're, we're we're very reasonable, but it's, it's it's one of those weird things where the bigger companies we help, the more they want, the more time they want to pay. Yeah, um, which just doesn't compute in my head. Like if you're working with a startup, maybe they need a little bit more time. But if I'm working with, I don't know, like Google, they should be able yeah. to pay you straight away. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's just one of those things. No, I quite like the fact with your investment, uh, you're very much staying within your kind of wheelhouse, like your expertise, because it just makes sense, right? Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of that. And, you know, I think, I mean, I think certainly that, that would be one bit of investment advice I would give really to, to anyone is invest in something that you know about. And, you know, so I, I have sort of sticked, stuck to my fairly small circle of competency, both in angel investments and in, in public stocks. I mean, something like Amazon, you know, that's a business that, that I can understand. And that, I think that's that's a pretty good idea. My, my wife actually works for Amazon and I was speaking to um, someone about shares the other day and they said that in um, lockdown they went up 60%, which is just ludicrous. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, although I think their, their, their revenue has also absolutely rocketed over this period, both from their e-commerce business and their, their AWS business. Yeah, I think, I mean, because lots of my friends will see Amazon in the news and just assume all the money is from, like, people buying stuff in lockdown, but obviously the AWS side is just insane. Um, and actually, Machine Labs, where, I mean, we're a very heavy user of um, Amazon. I mean, both yeah. for sending out emails, all the machine learning is all, all done um, by Amazon. That's a, it's, a good, uh, it's a good segue, actually. So, um, yeah, you, you mentioned you know, run Machine Labs. Um, sure. So I think that's, what, about a year and a half, pretty much? Uh, yes, that's that's right, yep. So, um, so yeah, what was the kind of idea behind it last February, and, and did it... Does it, has it changed at all? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, again, at, while I was the, the marketing director at Diet Chef, you know, I was a very technical marketing director. So I was sort of a marketing director, you know, who was comfortable writing SQL. And I, mean, I think a lot of people have the view that marketing is, you know, about being cre- dressing in black and being creative and, you know, talking <laughs> about the brand. Whereas I was, I was very much more the, up to my neck in numbers and SQL and data. So I guess what my thought was, was, you know, there, there's there's more than a million small businesses on Shopify and probably about another million on things like, you know, Magento and WooCommerce. I, and I, I guess I thought, well, I've, I've spent 10 years building marketing systems, um, you know, for, for my own business. Um, what about sort of generalizing these these systems that I've built? and offering it to other small businesses. But I didn't really think, I think the giant businesses, there's probably not much of an opportunity because, you know, the giant businesses, you know, they've all got a data science team and, you know, all these, you know, PhDs and in, in, in maths going over everything. So I think they've got yeah. it fairly well covered. Um, but, you know, what about all these small e-commerce businesses that uh, can't afford a data science team or, or even a single data scientist for that matter? And a lot of these e-commerce businesses, they're experts in their own area of, you know, fashion or health and beauty or whatever it is, but they're not necessarily experts in database marketing. 
Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, and I think what again the way you describe it on your profile is that it's the marketing product that you wish you had. Yeah, well, it took a long time, and I think eventually we did get there. But it did, it did. It, well, it took a decade to build it. Um, yeah, well, I suppose when you say you wish you had it, you kind of wish you had it out of the box rather than, yes. uh, than having to build it for ten years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, it, it, and you know, I mean, these guys, as I said, our, our customers, they really know their own businesses very, very well. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, our biggest sector is is fashion. Um, hmm. In fact, going back when I was a, a, a consultant, um, I, I did marketing work for a fashion website, and one of the buyers used to come to me regularly, asking me for advice, my, you know, my fashion advice and some of the clothing, and I, I was really flattered. But then I discovered if I said I liked something, he definitely wouldn't buy it. <laughs> and if I said I didn't like it, that was immediately listed on the website. And it turned out my fashion sense was the precise opposite of what would um, would work um, on the website. Um, but yeah, and 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 serious to know that, that there's a lot of numbers in e-commerce, and I think I think the difficulty is, well, if you think about your customers, you you've probably got a, a relatively small number of high-value customers. So on that yeah. basis, you kind of know your customers. You know, if I asked you to list your customers, you could do it. Yeah. Whereas in, in e-commerce, you tend to have large numbers of small-value customers. I mean, you know, the average in an e-commerce site, you know, maybe £20 is quite a, you know, a typical average. So even a small e-commerce store is likely to have thousands of small-value customers. And you just can't know them in the same way as you would with a bigger ticket price. So, you know, very quickly, if you're going to try and grow that business, you need to really start understanding the, the data. Yeah. And it's the biggest challenge for some of your customers getting like genuinely repeat business. So not even just like two transactions, maybe someone that's shopping every few months. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So in, in e-commerce, it's staggeringly difficult to make money on order number one. I mean, order number one is usually, it's break-even if you're lucky, and it's often going to be loss-making. Yeah. Order number two, though, you know, it's going to be nice and profitable and, you know, and that point onwards. So really at Machine Labs, we, we actually don't help with order number one at Machine Labs. Yeah. We do help with order number two, three, four, and, and onwards. So that's really where, you know, the database marketing comes in and, I think in e-commerce, people are often hugely focused on order number one and don't think so much about orders two, three, four onwards. And, you know, it's a difficult one. Um, Again, I mean, one of the areas that we can help with, people are very focused on the cost of acquiring a customer. So you might have an advert that acquires a customer for £20 each, and you might have another advert that acquires a customer for £30 each. So people that are new to e-commerce might immediately think, well, the one that's £20 each is the one I should concentrate on and spend all my budget on that. But it's often the case that, the well, we call it lifetime value. Yeah. A lifetime value of the, the ad that's maybe £30 each is better than the lifetime value of the one that's £20. So quite often by spending more to acquire a customer, you get a higher quality customer. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But again, that's not... You know, it's not a straightforward thing to do and to try and estimate kind of in advance what that's likely to be gets gets quite tricky. Because saying yeah. you know, saying I know how all well this ad work performed 
that I placed two years ago <laughs> isn't actually very useful because you've kind of got to make a decision in marketing, you know, a lot a lot faster than that. Yeah. So, no, I remember we had um, Adam Shoka on the podcast a while ago. I don't know if you've ever spoken to him, but he worked for um, a company called Clear Returns, um, who they used the data in the end to work out that loads of fashion companies, for example, were losing money on who they were giving their special offers to. And, and again, like you said, they were actually negative lifetime value yeah. when they when they thought they were doing the right thing. So like you said, it's really hard to identify. Well, it's very difficult. And, you know, the fact is that it's, it's incredibly easy in e-commerce to make your sales rocket um, if, if, if you're going to just sell stuff very cheaply at a loss. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people in e-commerce have, you know, boasted about how, how, you know, fast their sales have grown, but they're selling a product um, for less than it actually costs them. So, it, you know, it is that challenge of, of profitability. And, you know, again, and obviously we mentioned Amazon earlier, but I mean, one of the huge difficulties you have running a small e-commerce store is, is you're going head to head with Amazon. Um, yeah, they're trying to help out more though, aren't they? Well, to an extent, yes. I mean, obviously, you can sell through that platform. But I think, you know, I mean, I think for me, one of the things I like about Machine Labs, you know, is we are helping small businesses go head to head with Amazon and, you know, maybe the supermarkets and some of these really big companies. And, you know, I think kind of part of my mission at Machine Labs is to stop Jeff Bezos taking the lunch money from these these small, you know, e-commerce stores by giving them, you know, slightly similar technology to to what to what Amazon has. Yeah, and um, this is as usual with the podcast. Things just come to my mind as we're speaking. Yeah. Do Do you think one of the potential positives for a lot of your customers with the whole COVID-19 situation, there's been a huge push on the kind of like shop local, whatever local might mean to people. But do you think with online e-commerce stuff, that still rings true? Um, yeah, certainly for some of, well, I mean, one of um, our customers is Edinburgh Food Delivery, for example. Oh, yeah. um, and again, they, they actually launched the the site in, in response to COVID because I think they, they had been doing catering, which obviously just came to a complete end. Yeah. So they had a, a quick switch and started doing food delivery through Shopify, um, which has gone you know very well for them. So yeah, there's uh, although you know, you know having having said that, I mean at Machine Labs, you know I mean I mean most of our customers are from the US, so um, we we you know, I mean that which is kind of where most of the Shopify customers are. Um, uh, but yeah, Shopify itself though is doing very well. I think their sales made through Shopify has um, doubled over the past three months. Yeah, somebody must have retweeted that recently because I saw yeah. that. Yeah, um, and I suppose from your guys' point of view as well. So rather than just the customers, but you guys had some pretty exciting investment news, um, which especially yeah. in these times is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we we just raised a million pounds, um, and I, I'm always conscious when I'm. You know, and most of our competitors are based in, in Silicon Valley, and you know, a million pounds in Edinburgh is a very different thing <laughs> to a million pounds in Silicon Valley. It's a, a two-bedroom two flat in Silicon Valley. <laughs> exactly. We we certainly. I mean, you could probably hire maybe I don't know three engineers with with that in Silicon Valley. <laughs> so, um, so it's a million pounds in, in Scotland, um, uh, which is sort of a very different thing, and I mean that that gives us. You get probably eight, eighteen months to, to, to two years just to sort of get the product, you know, exactly where we want it to be, 
and and to continue to build out sales. Um, but you're right; it was it was not an easy time. I mean, I I mean, I had a whole bunch of of face to face meetings that were planned that were cancelled. Um, and I think one of the things I find about Zoom. It's it's very good for just exchanging information, but in some ways for persuading people to do something, or or, or for sort of selling. And obviously, fundraising is just selling, except it's you know it's selling equity, it's selling selling the vision. Um, I certainly personally, I I find it much harder to do that over Zoom than I do face to face. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So uh, I mean, and maybe that will change. Maybe some of it was. I suppose maybe people will get more more used to developing relationships over Zoom, perhaps. But uh, but yeah, I mean, for us, it absolutely couldn't have happened um, at a worse moment, um, really, to be. And I think the second side is not only did all the meetings get cancelled, but there was also panic about what was going to happen to the economy. So hmm. right now, valuations in software are or in SaaS are, are still quite high by historic terms. Yeah. So the last thing a VC wants to do is place a big investment just before a market crash because, you know, valuations are going to go down by half. Doing a big investment just before the valuations go down by half is not the sort of thing that, that goes down very well with your boss um, no. if, you're, if you're a VC. So that, I think, was also something that, that, that made the whole thing, um, you know, far from ideal. But yeah, uh, you managed to close it, which is amazing. And what, do you yeah. think that having run a successful business and also having failed at some businesses, do you think it made this investment like a hell of a lot easier? Like say, for example, maybe this was your Mark Zuckerberg number one idea at the start of your career. If you were raising money in the middle of a pandemic, like you, you probably wouldn't have got it, right? I think, well, I think, it, I think to be honest, what was mainly helpful is, is, is that we had made good progress on the product and we had people using it. So, yeah. Fact that we had three hundred people using the product from you know around the world, that definitely de-risked it. Because I mean, most startups fail to launch a product. Most startups that launch a product, you know, fail to get people they don't know to use it. So the fact we had three hundred yeah, people point. that we didn't know using the product helped a lot. Yeah, um, and you know, I think to you know, it, it, some of, some of the, the we also had support from our existing investors, which is is very important because the people that are already in there, if they want to invest again, the people that know the company most, that sends a great signal. And yeah, you know, we you know I spent a lot of time on the fundraising. Um, in fact, when I looked at our first fundraising, I worked out that I drank one unit of alcohol per twenty thousand pounds raised. <laughs> I <think it> was, <laughs> Which I guess is, is fundraising in Scotland, um, but you know I spent a lot of time building the relationships, and you know the time to build a relationship is always when things are good, because yeah. in any business or, or and I mean not even just funding relationships, but you know with key suppliers or key customers, you know you have that good relationship, you build it in good times, and then when a bad time comes. Um, you know, that the, the relationship is there. Um, yeah, I've noticed that in this. So, I mean, our job's obviously a bit different, but the relationship side of it is very similar. And we've spoken to some companies that haven't heard from any of their key recruitment suppliers for four months because they're either too scared or just don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I just find it bizarre. Like, if it's when you're in the kind of trenches like everyone is just now, I think it makes more sense to be mm-hmm. nice to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I suppose also the. 
I, 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 I guess in a, in a quieter time, you also just got a bit more time for actually building some of these these relationships too. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, given that we're on a vaguely connected data podcast, yeah. yes. uh, where does the kind of AI machine learning come into machine labs, yeah. other than the fact that marketing is probably the most obvious slash rife well, kind of data rich? Uh, well, I think it, it exactly is. I mean. Something, I mean, obviously, database marketing is about analyzing large numbers of small transactions. And that is just precisely the sort of thing that um, machine learning is extremely good at dealing with. So, I mean, again, obviously, one thing that I, I, I briefly mentioned is this idea of forecasting lifetime value in advance. So when you recruit a customer getting an idea of what that customer is likely to spend over the next two years is a very important thing to do. So that that was certainly one of our projects. So the second project for us is, I mean, database marketing very often ends up in, in writing an email to people. Um, and the critical thing you've got to do when you write an email um, is, is get people to open it. So what we've done is an analysis of subject lines and historic open rates. I mean, so far, we don't have a huge data set right now. We've only got about, we've only got a few million emails. Um, So a bigger data set there would would be great. But what it means is you type the subject line and then you get a forecast of the open rate before you send the email. So that that then allows you to have a go um, with a few different subject lines before you send it. That's our biggest argument in the office is what should we, what should our subject line be for? <laughs> well, they're incredibly important. I mean, the other thing is, which I can, I can, I can, I can give you this hint: is it's only the first four words that matter. Really, beyond we 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 are struggling to see any particular effect um, from words five and onwards. And but but we're not entirely sure why this is. I mean, my theory is it's because a lot of. Um, email is read on mobile phones, which quite you often... You only see like a snipper, right? Down to that first four words. Or it could just be that people just glance at the first four words and make up their, their minds based on that. But I would certainly say the shorter subject lines are better. Hmm. And uh, the, the, the it, is, it is the start of it that's much more important than anything else. Um, and again, this is maybe a perhaps a controversial one for you if you're in B2B, but um, emojis do seem to be, be uh, certainly in business to consumer, um, emojis do actually really seem to work pretty well. well that's because music to my ears because I love an emoji. <laughs> and it's, and it's, a, it's a divisive topic in the office, but I love it. Well, I think I think it's certainly something you can overuse as well. I'm potentially guilty of that. Between that and an exclamation mark, I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah. So that, and again, you know, if we can say to people, well, actually, you know, the, the you know, uh, uh, a machine learning analysis of open rates of subject lines can increase your open rate by even 5%. I mean, that's an absolutely, you know, huge win. Yeah. So that's one thing. And I, I guess the third big area for us is around order patterns. Um, so again, this is really, I mean, this is more relevant for things like health and beauty and fashion and food and drinks. So something, something like furniture doesn't really have an order pattern because yeah. you know, your furniture, you, know, like you buy that every, every sort of five years. But things like coffee or you know anything that you consume, 
and and fashion. Okay, I know fashion you don't consume, but there's still regular purchases. Hmm. So that's that again has been a big um, area for us because what you don't want to do is give a big offer to somebody that's about to buy anyway. So if someone's going to buy from you at full price, you don't want to give them a 20% offer. On the other hand, if someone's about to leave and go to a competitor, you probably do want to give them an offer. So again, we're doing a lot of analysis looking at this concept of is, is the customer about to buy? In which case, you might want to send them an email just to remind them that you exist, but without an offer in it. Or are they overdue, in which case you want to get right in there with an offer before they defect? And, you know, again, on profitability, you know, if you can decrease the discounts that you're giving out without actually affecting um, sales, um, that, that can make, you know, a huge difference. Um, That's interesting because I always assumed that, so this happened to me two days ago. My wife's been looking at the same rug on the same website for days and then randomly we got a 20% off thing. So like I, I signed up for it, paid for it, we've got it coming. I just always assume in my kind of cynical mind that that was just the price they really wanted us to pay anyway and they've just managed to get it over the line by offering us it. Yeah, I mean, again, there's these two types of discounts. There's the planned discounts where, you know, you, you've bought a product and, and, and you've planned to discount it. And then there's the unplanned discounts where you've got product that you, you, you need to... That just isn't selling, where you basically yeah. offer a discount just to shift it. Um, and again, that's also something else we do too: is, is product recommendation and reverse. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, reverse product recommendation. So, product recommendation. Well, that's kind of obvious. When you're sending an email out, we'll switch the prof the product for each customer into something that they're likely to buy. Yeah. Um, and then reverse product recommendation. This. In, in most e-commerce businesses, from time to time, you'll find out that you've got stock that you need to move. Um, now, obviously, in food and drink, stock tends to have a best before date. Yeah. Um, in fashion, it's all about seasons. So often you find that you've got stock that, that you need to offload. Um, so what we've got here is a reverse product recommendation. So you can say, I've got too much of this product, and then we can actually identify the people who are most likely to buy it. Um, and and you know help you get rid of that overstock without having to write any of it off. Yeah, that's good. So the team has grown kind of quite quickly from uh, the company being a year and a half old, which is amazing. How so? Two parts to this. How, how has the experience been of kind of growing a team again? Because obviously you did yeah. that very successfully at Dashef. Um And then I always ask, kind of, do you have any top tips for kind of other people who are? either hiring or potentially hiring in the future is to get a how to build a really good team? Sure. So obviously at the moment, uh, essentially we're still more of a development company than anything else. So there's there's only there's only actually two other people on the team. We've got one account exec and one marketing director and, and everybody else really is a developer right now. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that, that it's taken us a long time to actually get development recruitment um, right. I mean, certainly, as you know, in Edinburgh, it's a very tight market. So actually just getting people to be willing to, to, to interview at all is quite hard. I, I would say there's an inverse correlation in software development between how good people are and an interview. 
and how good they are at coding. Uh, I mean, it almost seems to be the case that people give a good interview <laughs> that they're bad at coding. And conversely, some of the people I've given terrible interviews uh, have actually turned out to be extremely good. So I think that's the kind of recruitment adage that my boss always tells everyone. He said, if you see a good CV, it's like you should almost just delete it. If you see a bad CV, you should fund them. <laughs> Do you know, I absolutely believe that. I mean, particularly for software development. I mean, I think obviously if it was for something with more people-based skills like sales or something, I think, I think it would be different. So what we've landed on our development recruitment right now is, is more or less interviewing anybody who we think roughly fits and then giving them a, a coding test. So really about 75% of the weight at the moment um, for our developers is based on the coding test. And the coding test... Again, we've also we've not got this coding test, but lots of sort of ridiculous, tricksy things in it. it. It's more based on actual real tasks that we'd be likely to give somebody. Yeah, um, that's really that's really important. Um, and I'm a bit also a big believer that it should be a, a sensible environment. I mean, I think this idea of locking the unfortunate candidate in a room without an internet connection. And <laughs> but I had somebody recently even said that they were forced to write code on paper. Which again, yeah, I've seen that whiteboard, like a whole solution on a whiteboard that you'll never I mean, do ever again. I mean, for goodness sake. I mean, I don't, I mean even, even the best candidate would likely to completely crack under the pressure of that. So, yeah. so we would say here's a real task, or well, it's not actually a real task, but something very similar to a real task. You've got as long as you want to do it, you know, do it at home. And that, that for us, you know, really seems to work. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I, we've seen so many kind of horror stories, and we've had a few recently, even in lockdown, where like uh, the premise of a tech test I don't disagree with. And, and speaking to a few people who hired developers, they said that the only thing you really need to do in an interview is to, to see how that person codes. Like, that's pretty, like you said, it's like 75%, if not more, of the interview. But loads yeah. of these tests that people are using are still kind of like out of the box solutions where it has there's no relevance, there's no um, but it's not how that person's going to work. So you end up getting a load of juniors or grads who pass it because it's quite uni or like quite like it's quite educational in terms of how you would do it or, or the, theory based rather than the kind of practicalities of you've got you've got a project to deliver in the next month and if it's not done the company's going to be in a real bad spot. How do you do it? Yeah, sure. And I think I also just ask other questions again on developers about just trying to understand if they're interested in code. Um, mm. So the obvious one is sort of the, the, you know, what are your ambitions question, which is the classic interview question. And what I'm wanting to hear is people are interested in learning more about code or, you know, and what I'm not wanting to hear is I want to get into management. <laughs> so that, <laughs> so that, that, yeah, that's, that's the process. Although, I mean, right now, I think we are, we're probably not going to do a great deal of recruitment in, until we've kind of built up revenues, I think, at this point. Um, yeah. Sensible. I'm, um, I'm keen to move the company really more, more to. Well, I'd like to really get more towards break even. I think over the next eighteen months. Yeah, I think. I mean, with the platform in place and the users and the investment, it seems like a solid kind of grounding for it. Yeah, I kind of think so. And also, it, I mean, we, well, I mean, we definitely will raise further funding, but it's it's great if we're coming to the funding round pretty much at break even. Because um, then you know there's just a, a slightly different sort of balance of power going into the fundraising. Um, yeah, but, you don't you don't need their money; you just quite like it. 
you you always want to raise money when you don't need it. Um, yeah. It's like going to the bank for a loan. You can always get a loan from the bank when you don't need one. It's what we say to um, all of our candidates. Like the best time to, to potentially be on the market is when you're not on the market. Yes, yes that's um, absolutely so, so it makes sense. And you touched on it there, but I mean, what, given that we are hoping to see some sort of light at the end of the tunnel with COVID. Uh, do you guys have a plan in place for the next kind of 12 to 18 months on, on if there's, will the product look similar, do you think, just with more users? Um, well, we're, we're, we're doing a lot more work on the data science side. Um, I mean, really, the, the the challenge we actually have there at the moment is mainly about data because we, we've, I mean, 300 customers might sound a reasonable number, but the problem is, to actually begin to draw proper conclusions with data science, you actually really need some very big data sets. Um, yeah. So that's probably the, the big thing that's going to be coming out is a lot more of these AI features, you know, as we have more of the data to do it. Um, and that that's the really interesting thing. I mean, the core, you know, choosing a segment and emailing that segment, that's kind of been done before. Um, I mean, the, the, the exciting bit is, you know, is, is using the AI to, you know, help help people make their businesses more profitable. Yeah, no, I mean, back on. And then just lastly, uh, where's the best place, if any, for people to kind of check you guys out or keep up to date with what's going on at Machine Machine Labs? Do you guys use Twitter or LinkedIn? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, the the website is machinelabs.com and uh, Twitter is um, machinelabs, machine underscore labs, something like that. You'll find it. I'll Um, I'll tag it in. Um, I'm on Twitter as well um, as the Veach. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, although my Twitter is not particularly serious, really. <laughs> That's almost a better reason to follow it. Um, no, nice. Uh, so when we when we post everything, I make sure we tag everything up, but uh, people can check you guys out and see what's going on. And obviously, you've been in the news recently as well with uh, lots of information on the investment, which is cool. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for being on. I really appreciate the time. I've really enjoyed it. Another fun episode in the books. Uh, What an interesting backstory and journey kind of into data Andrew has had. Um, I must admit, I actually didn't know quite a lot of that, so it was uh, was really good for me as well. And it's always good to see an Edinburgh company doing so well um, with regards to kind of growth and investment, even in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, So thanks again to Cathcart Associates for making all of this possible. Um, Thank you to you for joining, and we will be back soon.